I've had a, a surprising number of encounters, I feel like, with God in the car. I think it's why I uh, maybe appreciate a good road trip. In 2003, um, this week, in fact, 20 years ago, I drove from Albuquerque to Lubbock to start my job as a campus minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Uh, Danette, Jed, and Blakely, um, Jed was just two, Blakely was a few months. They stayed back in Albuquerque while we waited to sell our house. So I left in my Jeep Wrangler. Top was down, I was mostly loaded. And I got to this place outside of Clovis, and it looked like it was about to uh, downpour, like it does in the summer on the, the, pla- the plains of eastern New Mexico. Um, and as that wind was moving, and as the rain started to come down, like I could, I had such doubt about what I was about to do. Like I had served in three previous churches, they were all hard. Two of them ended earlier than I would have hoped. And so going to this new place, I felt this deep anxiety in the pit of my stomach. And there in the storm, with me putting the top up on my Jeep, I felt God's warmth and presence that he was going to be with us. And it was a a deep and moving moment of peace. Now, years later, post seminary, my family and I were traveling to Canada. I was interviewing at the time for a job in Wisconsin via phone. We had stopped working at the church that I had been serving at through seminary. Gas was $4.50 a gallon. Everything seemed so expensive, like Canada was like really, really expensive. And I had four kids, now all under the age of nine. And and I wasn't sure what we were going to do as I awaited a new job and pay. And so as we crossed over in this very remote part of Canada, I had my first panic attack. I remember being ashamed, waking up and in the middle of the night and seeing all my family strewn in this little hotel room. And I went into the bathroom because I had nowhere else to go. And I didn't want anybody else to know what was happening to me. And I looked in the mirror, and I was like, God, what if this doesn't end? Like, what if the panic that I'm feeling goes on and on and on? And in that moment, I had been reading Paul Miller's book, The Praying Life, and the words, like, washed over me. And I prayed. Later that year, I was in my car driving to an interview here in Albuquerque. Then it was called Crossroads Fellowship Church. This was just days before I met Richard Jackson in his leather coat. I'll never forget Richard in his leather coat. I was wrestling about whether I should take a call to plant a church in Albuquerque or do RUF ministry at the University of Arizona. And so I was pleading with God, "What, what do I do, God? And the answer came in an Avett Brothers song called Bird in the Cage. The words, you are loved, you are never rejected. Decide what to be and go be it. Now, all these experiences car bound, all of them truer than my words can adequately describe. All of these places are what Celtic Christians 
have historically called a thin place. A thin place, according to Timothy George, is special, not because the air is rarefied or the land is narrow, but because the distance between heaven and earth seems to shrink. Time and eternity seem to embrace. Now, the Celts believed that thin places were actual physical geographic places where the barrier between heaven and earth was porous, so porous that the Lord would meet you in this place with kindness. Now, these places, of course, we see in the biblical story, right? Like from Eden to the burning bush to Mount Carmel in our Elijah story to Bethlehem, there are these thin places, it seems. These thin places, according to author Joel Busby, do three things. They, they move our faith from, from abstract to concrete. Like, God moves in actual time and space and fulfills his promises. And so a thin, in a thin place, God's faithfulness comes alive, becomes touchable. Thin places also serve as a portal, like for our memories. They help us, in other words, remember how God was faithful in the past so that we might grow to trust him in whatever present things we're dealing with. Like, I can still see these places, remember what I felt and experienced there when I drive by them, which I do for a couple of them nearly monthly. And every time I do, I stop and remember the thin places also prepare us, prepare us for the day when every place will be thin. Like the story of the Bible ends in Revelation where John prophesies, the dwelling place of God is with humans again. And so thin places prepare us for God's presence. So I ask you this morning as we start, what, where are thin places for you? Where are the places? They could be geographic. They could be, like, circumstantial. Where are the places where you sense God's presence in a deep and powerful, real way? Now, today, our text is about a thin place. And this thin place, what I want you to know, this thin place is formed by prayer. Now, as we start, this sermon is largely a riff of a sermon preached by my former seminary professor, Sinclair Ferguson. Now, sometimes in preparation, I will listen to a sermon. It's not regular. Um, now, oddly, this, this story of Elisha is like one of my favorite of the Elisha stories. I don't know why, it just is. And I had ideas about the text going into it, but I had not a lot of ton of clarity about preaching it, and so I read a bunch of things, and then I listened to a couple sermons, and this sermon by Dr. Ferguson just became this earworm that I just couldn't shake. I, I listened to it four times, and I couldn't leave it. So the ground of any content you're hearing today is really largely from it. Now, one word used to describe a prophet, right? The man of God, Elisha, is a prophet. A word used to describe a prophet is seer. Now, it's spelled uniquely, right? Seer. A person who sees what others cannot see. 
Now, what does the man of God see? For one, many prophets in the Bible have visions. They dream dreams, and then they interpret those dreams. They see, and what do they see? They see the connectedness between the pictures in their vision and the images of what God is going to do in the world and in history. In Amos chapter 3, a prophet, we read, the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Now, the man of God, the prophet of God, sees. He sees what others can't see because God reveals it to him, reveals to him what his plans are, what the vision means. In fact, in chapter 4, when we talked about the Shunammite woman, there's this moment, right, where Elisha is surprised that the Shunammite woman is coming to him, and he says, I didn't see this coming, referring to the death of her son. The Lord didn't show me what he was going to do. This is unique, not normative for the prophet of God in the Old Testament. In fact, the man of God and Elisha in particular sees these thin places. He sees this because in a sense of what we've been saying throughout the narrative is that Elijah is actually what? He actually is a thin place. Like in the person of Elisha, we see heaven and earth meeting. We, we talked throughout this how Elisha is a type of temple, a moving temple in the northern kingdom of Samaria. Remember, they, they created their own temple apart from God's plan. They set up two golden calves and they worshiped there. And that was not the temple. And so almost as an act of defiance against that temple, God sends his prophet into the northern kingdom and the, the prophet becomes a type of temple. Wherever Elisha goes... God's presence goes with him. The, the normally thick membrane of this world and that world gets thin, razor thin, in Elisha. And here in our text, Elisha sees. He sees what's invisible. This is part of the mantle that Elijah wears as the man of God. It's emphasized in putting on the mantle of his predecessor, Elijah the mantle of the prophet of God. Elijah, full of, covered by the Holy Spirit so that he can see. He sees the invisible. With him, the membrane is thin. In fact, the first section of our text has some fun with this, right? The king of Syria is angry and upset because all the raids he's been launching into Israel are turning up empty. He sends out a raiding party to pillage, steal, and they come back with nothing. He sends out another party to find the king of Israel for such a thing, to track his movements, and then to surprise the king of Israel and kidnap him and bring him back into Syria. So he does these raids again and again, and every time their surprise falls empty. Now I think about Marty Bird from the TV show Ozark, the all-seeing Marty, who is working for both the Mexican cartel and the FBI. And so when the cartel sends out a truck with stolen goods, the FBI is alerted and the truck is taken and the cartel wonders, why is this happening? Why, I'll tell you why it's happening. Because Marty Bird sees. You see, he exists in both worlds in such a way that he knows the inside things, the secret things. In our text, the king of Syria surmises that there is a Marty bird working 
for Israel from inside his very own court. This is surely the only reason all these raids keep ending in futility. So the king is losing it. He's enraged. Who here is working for the king of Israel? And then the king of Syria is let in. It's Elijah who is the seer, my lord. Your royal highness, Elisha is the one telling the king of Israel your secrets. The secrets you speak in your inner chamber. Elisha hears what you're sharing. Hears what you're thinking. He hears where you're sending out raiders and tells the king of Israel how to avoid them. And right there, we are confronted in our disenchanted world with something enchanted. So the king says, where is he? Well, Elijah's in Dothan. Go there, seize him. And so the king of Israel thinks, now he will surprise Elijah, right? Like, it's kind of arrogant, right? Like, he's going to surprise the one who has been, like, reading his mind? The one who hears his secrets in his very own bedroom? Oh, the arrogance of the proud and the powerful. They, they think that they can outknow God. They exalt themselves against God and his kingdom. This king remains unnamed, sets himself against God and his anointed. And maybe this is a good stopping point. Because I think this gets at something for us regarding thin places. Our desire to know. Now, we think we know. We think we know better, more than God. Now, I want to tread lightly here. It's important to recognize that what happens with Elisha happens before the coming of Jesus, before the closing of the canon of Scripture, that God moves in his world in certain ways this time in history, working through promises and covenants, working through the anointing of his kings and prophets, working even though through those oftentimes when kings reject him in their own pride and power. But how do we think we know? How do we set ourselves up in these places? Maybe like Israel did with the Asherah, right? They would find a high place. They thought a thin place where the gods met with people and they'd set up this pull, a, a just-in-case pull, in case God didn't meet with them, they'd have another way out, claiming this thin place in the name of some other God. Now, I think we do this in a few ways. Now, one way, as Americans in this current moment, is we think we have inside information. Bonnie Christian has written a book called Untrustworthy. In the book, Bonnie says, we have a knowledge crisis. Over the last decade, many of us have found ourselves increasingly unable to relate to the world inhabited by our neighbors, coworkers, friends, and family members. It's not merely that we're reacting to the same events in different ways or holding conflicting opinions about the same events and ideas. Increasingly, through our consumption of media, we've come to inhabit, hear this, ever-increasing niche information ecosystems apart from one another. We have different spins on the same reality. We have a glimpse into two completely different 
kinds of reality. Many of us have encountered chaos in our churches, families, social relationships, left in the wake of this like algorithm-fueled conspiracy. And we begin to think that we see through it, that we have the knowledge, the secret knowledge of what's really happening here. And so because of this, we get stuck in these places where we think we see. There is this quest here to find a thin place in our secret knowledge. I I know what's really happening. Let me tell you. I I read the news and the tea leaves. Let me send you this thing. I know what's really happening with these historical events I can see. Now, another way we think we know more is the idea of this voice of truth that, that the voice is the true voice, right? Like, have you thought about the unquestionable way of being in the world today? Like, when you need help knowing what to do, what does our world instruct you to do? To look within. There you will find the answers. And yet, in the most honest moments of our life, This is often where we are most rife with uncertainty and the unknown. Answers within cause us a great deal of anxiety and pressure. Perhaps that's why we're so anxious, because the water we've been swimming in is telling us if you need to know something about who you are, know something about the world, look within. We're trying to get it right, and the pressure is killing us. It's undoing us. Third, like we... We don't tread lightly with these two first things, need, lightly and needily. Here's what I mean. We, we assume that we know what we know, and we don't handle it with the appropriate level of skepticism. Like we pursue certainty, and we think we can find it in all these ways, but our life is actually plagued with spectacles that are so thick that we can't see rightly. Calvin says knowledge of God leads to knowledge of self, and knowledge of self leads to knowledge of God. But in order to see this, we need need new lenses. And then the last thing that is a challenge for us is thick membranes. Now, here's what I mean by this. Our world has set itself against knowing. Here's what I mean. All knowing comes not from something outside of us, but inside. And that knowing has... Nothing supernatural, but only natural. If anything, we can't know anything about the supernatural realm out there. We can only know what's here. And by here, look around, the world that we can see, taste, touch, smell, feel. We live in this disenchanted world. This is why technique thrives. I mean, is something wrong? Then we, then we must have done something or we're not doing something to get it right. And so there's a technique for us that will fix us and get us free from those things. And in all of that, our membrane gets really thick because there is this natural or technological solution for whatever ails you. And if not that, then there's some Jewish jurisprudence a new history that overcomes uh, uh, the oppressive history that you lived in. Now, I'm taking my cue here from Sinclair. Elisha, the man of God, does not move through the world in this way. How do we know? Well, well, what does he do? This text where the prophet sees and everyone else is blind is marked by what? Prayer. Prayer 
is how Elisha occupies and lives in these thin places. How do you move from the thick membrane of this world to the thin places where God meets you through prayer? Now, there are three prayers here, not... Not three words, notice, not three words speaking from God to the people. Because yes, a prophet is known, for thus says the Lord. The prophet often speaks. And what does he speak? God's word to God's people. But here, we have three prayers of the man of God speaking to God for people. Here, Elisha, the man of God, the prophet of God, acts as priest of God, the one going before God on behalf of his people, speaking to God for the people. And here we see the absolute certainty and centrality, sorry, of prayer. For anyone who speaks God's words, either privately or publicly, now what what, what that means is the public reading of the word as in worship, or the private, as we gather in small groups, one-on-one, as we live out our lives in the church, as we minister as elders or deacons or children ministry workers, as we go to Bible studies, as we minister in our homes or with friends, even as we go out in the world to witness of God, people who vocationally move in the world for the flourishing of others, speaking and enfleshing words, as you do this, as you occupy those thin places these places where God is at work, you are to pray. You are to ask. You are to seek God in prayer. Elisha is the man of God. He speaks to God on behalf of the people and prays that God might what? Might do his work. So prayer one, the prayer for Elisha's servant to have his eyes open. I really do love this moment. One of uh, my favorite Old Testament passages in my Christian challenge days at New Mexico State, this was one of our core discipling passages. Elijah, the disciple maker, the servant, the disciple. Well, the word servant here is different from the other servant we've talked about all before this, the servant named Gehazi. In fact, the word is used in Hebrew is a different word. This servant, right, he wakes up one morning, walks out of the house, and what does he see? The entire hillside surrounded. Horses, chariots, a great army. And this causes him great alarm. Now, it's hard for us to grasp. I mean, how many times have you and I been surrounded by an army? But maybe it is a call in the middle of the night, something in your neighborhood where there's sirens and alarms, a moment that rouses you, and in that moment you're filled with shock and also fear. The young servant thinking, my life is, I know it is over. They're going to seize Elijah and me, and they will take Elijah, and then they'll go get the king, and I might die, and many of my brothers and sisters might die. Like, that's what's happening. There is an army that has surrounded the man of God. And so the servant sees and thinks that he, he really sees. And he panics. 
And he runs in the house and he wakes Elijah. And Elijah, what shall we do? Do you see what I see? Do you see it? Look, the army has come for us. We're, we're done for. And Elijah responds, it isn't so much do I see what you see, but do you see what I see? And so Elijah prays, O Lord, open the eyes of the young man that he might see. And here in this moment, the servant peers through this thin place and sees, sees through the visible to the invisible, the thin membrane of the real. And this is what's at stake for us this morning. There is something at work in the world that is more real than what you or I can see. There is a realm overlaid with this one, separated in most moments by our senses. This realm is the realm of what is most real, the eternal realm hidden in the finite. And for a moment, the servant's eyes are opened and he sees. And what does he see? He sees the host of heaven chariots of fire encamped around this army that's encamped around them. Like, this servant has a squint. Now, there's this episode of Seinfeld where George loses his glasses at a health club, and he, he runs outside and squints and thinks he sees Jerry, Jerry's girlfriend kissing Jerry's cousin. Now, he later tells Jerry what he saw, and Jerry's like, George, how can you see? You didn't have your glasses on. And George says, I was squinting. Squinting? You can't see anything. Squinting. And then George peers across the apartment and sees a quarter on the floor and convinces Jerry that what he saw squinting is what he saw. He's confronted with doubt. Maybe, maybe George did see my girlfriend kissing my cousin. Of course, we find out that George didn't actually see Jerry's girlfriend kissing Jerry's horse-faced cousin, but a New York cop kissing her horse. Now, now the servant has a squint, and he can't focus his gaze on what's really there because for the servant, what is really there is what he can see. And so Elijah prays, see what is beyond through what human eyes can see. And he prays that he might see God at work, the eternal God and his angels working out God's providential ways. How is your squint? I mean, what changes for you knowing that there are invisible things happening in the world that you can't see? What changes for you? How's your squint? The servant boy is in a panic. Doesn't that describe us, beloved? Like our anxiety's full tent, tilt 
Elisha has such poise. The, the boy's vision needs to be adjusted. The power of the Syrians seems so mighty and so great, so insurmountable. I mean, look at all these horses and chariots. He needs to see, in reality, the power of the Syrians is small and the power of the Lord is great. I love how Dr. Ferguson says this. The visible is lighter than the invisible. And the invisible is gloriously heavier than the visible. This is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, how do you keep going? Because I've, I've learned to see. I've learned to see, Paul says, the visible in the light of the invisible, the, the temporary in the light of the eternal. Paul says, this is why I can see my present sufferings in light, in contrast in the, the, to the enormous weight of glory that God gives his children. You see, we, friends, we assume that we're two-eyed men and women, but only when we venture into this land of Scripture and of faith, the way God moves in history, when we've experienced some outpouring of God's grace, then we see. We, we see that we've lived our life as like one-eyed, short-sighted men and women. We, we've been squinting, seeing life only from a place of our own understanding and what our eyes can see. I haven't learned to see reality by my by ears, but I'm, I'm seeing it through my eyes. And what I need is God's promises to shape my hearing so that I will see correctly. We need God's word heard to correct our vision. Oh, that someone would pray for me, for us, that we might see all things in light of God's promises in Jesus, the power of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. See all things in light of those things so that we might be able to take on evil or bad done to me or, or by me and see how God is going to work out these things for our good. The, the servant's eyes are opened. No more squinting into the thick membrane because Elisha prays and his eyes are open. The second prayer, now Elijah sees, prays, please, Lord, strike this army with blindness. Elijah prays, close the eyes of the searing army as they are marching to take him. Elijah becomes a tour, sort of tour guide. They, they've been looking for the king, but now they're looking for Elijah, and Elijah says, hey, hey, I'll show you the way to the man that you've been looking for. This is after he blinds him, by the way, right? Notice the, like, that's interesting, right? He blinds them, and now he says, I'll, I'll take you. I'll show you what you've been looking for. And so he shows them to the the way to the king of Israel, and takes the blind army to Samaria, the abode of the enemy. Notice what God does in dealing with his enemies here. He, he doesn't use normal artillery. Now, normatively speaking, when God leads his people to victory over their enemies, God dismisses ordinary artillery. When the Midianites are defeated, he dismisses ordinary power. It is through Gideon, his men, lights, pots, a loud noise, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 
marching around the walls of Jericho with what? A horn and a shout. Five smooth pebbles of David and a sling. I'm coming at you. He doesn't say with my five rocks and my sling, but he says, I'm coming at you, Goliath, in the name of the Lord. God blinds the army and leads them into the camp. God's weapons are spiritual weapons. Lord, help us, right? Friends, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so the weapons with which we engage are not of this world. The thick membrane for the evangelical church using the same weapons in the social battles that their opponents are using against them. I don't know how often in the last six years I've heard time and time again this contested call for different tactics than winsome ways. We must fight more aggressively. Now this moment, this moment with all its undoing of identity and sexuality and all the language games and power dynamics we're being told by the church needs the same kind of name-calling, bullying, boycotting, canceling, shame, guilt. And then if that doesn't work, maybe a lobbyist of one, two, three, four, ten. And if that doesn't work, then how about some whataboutism? What about them? If they're going to do this, why shouldn't we? The same artillery. The Apostle Paul tells us that the weapons of our warfare are powerful and mighty, that the weapons of our warfare pull down strongholds. These spiritual weapons of our warfare are what most of us evangelical Christians find the most difficult to use. In fact, most never use. This is the thick membrane. And we're cocooned in it. And Elijah shows us prayer is the weapon. Prayer opens the eyes of the servant and help him, helps him see. Prayer blinds the eyes of the Syrians and brings them into the center of Samaria. Are you in this battle? Have you given yourself to prayer? When you face dangers and troubles and you're despairing and you're fearful, and you're seeing with eyes of the flesh, what do you do? Just stop for a moment and think of all the cares and worries of this past week, all those places of alarm, all those behold moments. It could be as simple as someone, something breaking or something costing. It could be social anxiety, a, a, a new burgeoning situation that is placing you in all sorts of awkward kind of situations and places. It could be launching out into the big, brave world with all that fear and all those questions. Do I have what it takes? It could be the anxiety of your story, like the way someone failed you in the past, unleashing upon you as you experience failure in the present, trouble and affliction. It could be the way you yearn for others to see. In these moments, we are tempted to walk by sight. If sight was fully given, faith wouldn't be necessary. This is why Paul calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. Faith in God's promises. This is giving ourselves to prayer. There's a huge number of Christians whose lifestyles are no different than those 
who are without faith. Why are you so powerless? Maybe because we are so prayerless. Elisha knows and Elisha prays. And this leads to the third prayer, verse 20. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they might see. And so the Lord opened their eyes. And they saw what? They're in the midst of enemy territory in Samaria. Samaria. This is a picture of, of what it looks like when someone comes to faith through the prayers of one who has spoken to them God's word. Their eyes are opened to see what? That they are captives. And there's nothing they can do about it. And then they see that the man who prayed them into their sense of captivity is the man who commands a feast that should be set before them. For some of us in this room, we know this. As someone has prayed for us, our bondage, our captivity was broken. We, we never thought this would be our story. We, we never thought that we'd be a Christian or that faith would be our story. Notice the king of Israel, known not for his treasuring of God and his word or his ways, wants to strike down his enemies in the middle of his territory. He thinks this is even why Elijah has brought them there. You won't strike them, Elisha said. Instead, you will set before them a feast. Maybe we grew up in church and we're like, ho-hum, we've heard it all before. In fact, maybe some of the ways we've internalized the message of growing up in a church was not, it's not something that we really wanted. That it wasn't actually a, a feast of good things for us. And then we heard it like we never heard it before. And the gospel comes to us. And in that moment, our, our eyes are open and a table is spread. A feast given for us as enemies. The beauty of a table spread, a, a banner placed over you which says, Love, you prepare a table before me. One who used to be an enemy you now call friend. Imagine them returning to the Syrian king. What do you mean you were led into the territory of enemy? while you were on a raid to kill his prophet and king, and you lived to tell about it. And not just lived to tell about it, but you came back with a doggy bag, and you're a little buzzed. Like, what an undoing of the artillery of the world by the artillery of heaven through prayer. We're told by this act that the Syrians... who were waging war and raiding on Israel, that the table spread brings peace. My friends, let's close with this. When Jesus came into our world, when he began his public ministry, rumors started to spread that Elijah has come. Now remember, Elijah was taken to heaven on chariots of fire, never to die, just ushered through the veil into the real. In Jesus, it was thought, Maybe Elijah is making a reappearing. That it wasn't Jesus, but Elijah. In fact, anyone um, was Elijah. Jesus, if anyone was Elijah, Jesus said it was John, the Baptist, his cousin. John was a forerunner, we're told, of Jesus. In the same way, Elijah was a forerunner to whom? Elisha. In fact, this is one key in understanding the Elijah-Elisha narratives. How they are foreshadowing Jesus and John. Now the promise was Elijah would come as a forerunner and Jesus would tell the crowds and the scribes and the Pharisees, Elijah has come. 
and his name is John. John, the prophet, came like Elijah came. Now remember, there is this moment, this moment in the life of John. This is one of my favorite things in all the Gospels. When John, who was forerunner, John who leapt in his mother's womb, when Mary comes carrying baby Jesus in her womb, John who preached in the wilderness about the coming of the kingdom, this John finds himself exiled, just like Elijah when he was on the run from Ahab thinking he was all alone, the lone prophet in Israel, wishing perhaps to be dead, the membrane of suffering proving very thick for him. This John finds himself in a similar place in jail. At the urging of Herod's daughter, sitting there awaiting his execution, tells his disciples, go ask Jesus, what? Are you the one? Are you the one that was promised, or should we expect another? Why does he ask this? Well, the membrane became thick for him, right? All he knew about Jesus, seen in Jesus, wasn't enough when faced with his own suffering, his own possible death, the injustice of it all, by the way. Like, Jesus, aren't you going to free me? I mean, aren't you going to bring your kingdom? Isn't it time for some artillery fire and judgment? Are are you going to rouse the host of heaven on my behalf? Are you the one? People are being given feast. Jesus says to John's disciples, that's right, John, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the wretched of the earth are learning that God is on their side. Is that what you were expecting, John? That's right, John, people are given feast. And this is what happens here with Elijah God saves. Elisha's namesake, my God saves. Elisha opens the eyes of the blind. He blinds those who think he can see. He subdues enemies before them. And then he spreads a table, a feast of goodness and grace. Elijah, surrounded by the host of heaven, he has no need to fight with a sword. Instead, he fights with generosity. He overcomes their hostility with an abundance of hospitality. The Apostle Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Friends, this is the artillery of heaven. And this is what we commit to at the Lord's table. While we were yet sinners, Christ, the bread of life, gave himself for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. God calls his enemies and spreads a great feast before us and tells the church, pray. And go do likewise. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us. Help me to be uh, someone who prays. Help our church to be a church that prays. Even now, God, open our eyes as we come to the table, as you feed us and nourish us. Help us to see that you have spread a table before us, that you are our host, that you call us to move in the world in much the same way. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.